0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey Adapters, welcome back to a very special episode of America Adapts. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of the podcast. So that explosion that kicked off this episode was cannon fire from the Castillo de San Marcos, a large Spanish fortress located in downtown St. Augustine, Florida. I traveled to St. Augustine to attend the Keeping History Above Water Conference. This conference was all about historic preservation and sea level rise. Florida has been the subject of many of my podcasts, and I was just dazzled by the work being done in the state. Okay, a little bit more background. I was invited to come and record a podcast at this conference. This episode of America Daps was generously sponsored by the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, Flagler College, and the University of Florida. As part of the sponsorship, not only did I record with attendees, I was invited to speak during the middle of the conference, sharing my reflections on what I was seeing and hearing. It was great connecting with so many people there. The organizers also had me lead a how-to-podcast workshop just prior to the conference. It was held in the historic Lewis Auditorium at Flagler College. What a gorgeous location, and it was a lot of fun. I shared how I started my podcast, all the basics of starting your own podcast. And then we all rolled up our sleeves and attendees came up with their own podcast ideas and pitched it to everyone else. Hopefully we'll see some actual podcasts come out of that session. Okay. The conference organizers recorded most of the presentations at the conference, and I will have those in my show notes. Check them out. Some amazing work being done across the country. I interview over a dozen experts in this episode, covering a wide spectrum of actions occurring in historic preservation. And for those of you who aren't familiar with St. Augustine, it's the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in the United States. Lots of history there. It's also under severe threat from sea level rise, and you are going to hear from all sorts of experts on what they are doing to mitigate this. This was a national conference, so not only are you going to hear about Florida, but you'll hear from other historic preservation experts on what's being done around the country. Okay, let's take a journey to beautiful St. Augustine and hear from those at the Keeping History Above Water Conference. Hey, Adapters, we are back at the Keeping History Above Water Conference, and I am with...
1: Dr. Leslie Keyes. I am the Director of Historic Preservation and Special Initiatives at Flagler College and an Assistant Professor in History. I also am the co-chair of the Keeping History Above Water St. Augustine 2019 Conference.
0: If you could kind of briefly summarize, what is Keeping History Above Water all about?
1: This is pulling together people from all disciplines from all over the world to strategize, to talk, to communicate, to present data so that we can all collectively work together to determine the next steps to take over short-term, medium-range, and long-term on sea level rise and particularly how it affects our cultural resources, those above-ground resources, those places, those archaeological sites throughout the world that we all value, that we recognize, that are iconic that are expressions of our folkways, our religions, our practices, all of what really makes us, us.
0: So we're in St. Augustine. Why are we in St. Augustine?
1: Well, St. Augustine is um, the Spanish colonial city founded in 1565, so it predates the two English cities that most people in the United States hear about, which are Plymouth, and Jamestown. And it was founded, ironically, in the midst of a hurricane on September 8th of 1565, which is part of the reason it's Spanish and not French, because the French were offshore. And we've celebrated 450 years of history. We're very proud of that. We are a world-class destination. We're a tiny little city of 15,000 people with six and a half million tourists a year. And we've been through a lot of hurricanes, which we are pretty resilient to dealing with, But now that we are being impacted by sea level rise, and we are in part of the southeastern United States, so we are experiencing it faster than other parts of the United States, we would like to start thinking about what to do for our 500th anniversary, and one of those things is to become a more resilient community and deal with our sea level rise issues.
0: Okay, so I think this is the fourth Keeping History Above Water conference. What's changed, you know, from that first meeting? How has it sort of evolved? What's, I mean, you keep having this meeting and you must see it grow and kind of change directions in some ways.
1: Well, I went to Newport, which was the beginning and they actually have trademarked the name of the conference. Newport was in 2016. Annapolis was in 2017. Then a little one day workshop was done out in California in Marin County. Also, I think in 2018. So we're the third major conference to come out of this. And I think the difference, and I've been to all except the California session, we still pull together more than 200 people from a lot of different places, but I think that we are, let's say, um, more sophisticated in our dialogue perhaps now. The Newport Conference was amazing because it was very novel to put people from a variety of disciplines and backgrounds and ages all together in a room for two days to talk to each other. So the energy was amazing and that has continued on. Each place pulls a little bit of its locality in. So in Newport, their earliest colonial city area is downtown is almost underwater. And their very famous port with the boat show is going to have problems in the next few decades. Annapolis, the same kind of thing, but also pulled the military piece of it in there, their city dock, what they call Ego Alley, and their boat show. So you have those commonalities. We are also on the water here in St. Augustine. I think the biggest difference is the fact that we are a very, very small community and we have an enormous tourist business. So that is probably our difference. Um, in that we all have people who work and live downtown. But when you have six and a half million visitors, they're not particularly up on, gosh, should I go during hurricane season? Or when should I stay away? Or, you know, because we market it year round. And that's our industry. That is how we make a living and we survive. So we need to be prepared. We need to be positive. We also have to help people evacuate and recover better. And Florida, for the last several years since we've been out of the recession, has added a 1,000 people a day who come here as residents every single day. That's a population increase statewide of 365,000 more people every year. And we are getting a whole bunch of them here in St. John's County, so the county that surrounds St. Augustine.
0: Okay, I'm a native Floridian, but I just left and I moved out west, Arizona, so you could kind of tick me off to that overall number. So you've sort of explained what the conference is about, but can, what, what, what's in store with, when it comes to some of the speakers that you've recruited for, I guess, some of the keynote sessions?
1: Well, we try to pull in, especially for the keynote sessions, some of the, most farsighted leaders, the people with the Protestant experience, people in some cases whose names will really resonate. So the conference kicks off with actually a public day on Sunday, Cinco de Mayo. It's kind of that Spanish thing again, sort of. And we will have Jeff Goodell come in who did the Rolling Stone article, Goodbye Miami, also has written a couple books. Most recently, The Water Will Come that many people are familiar with. But we will kick off that evening session with a 14-minute documentary that a Flagler College student, Mallory Hopkins, did because she was here for two hurricanes during her college career. (laughs) Not exactly what a student out of high school getting ready to live away from mom and dad wants to deal with. And she took that. It became her senior project. She did an amazing video. It has won all sorts of awards in the state of Florida. And that's kind of the local kickoff for it. And then Jeff will bring a world perspective. And of course, that's after Doug Parsons does his (laughs) podcast workshop, which we're very excited to have too.
0: So I have a a lot of younger listeners, like they're in the college and they're looking to get into the adaptation universe. They're like, what does it really mean to be an adaptation professional? And when they listen to the podcast, they let me know, oh, landscape architecture. And so historic preservation, would you encourage them that this is a field that's really looking for more uh, younger individuals to become adaptation professionals?
1: I think absolutely, because historic preservation is a multidisciplinary field. It's essentially anything that's old, that you can physically touch, emotionally experience. And we are really past, let's just save Mount Vernon and the White House and the U.S. Capitol. We might still need to save Thomas Jefferson's statue if you know, I'm talking to somebody from Virginia. But this is a great position for young professionals to step into because it requires cutting-edge experience and technology and literally tech, 3D imaging, scanning, all of those wonderful computer games, even. We had Game of Floods we did a couple of years ago at the conference. So we pull in all of this 21st century interest that millennials have, and they are solving problems, though, that my generation and beyond and older generations have created. And that will help us, I think, to continue to have high quality of lives in the United States and elsewhere.
0: I think, from what I've heard, they, they would learn um, a lot of the, I guess, skills to be in the adaptation field. But par- part of the problem in the U.S., and this has been with other disciplines too, like landscape architecture, you go to universities and there's just not a lot of academic courses that are directly related to climate change. Are you, Is that changing in your field? Is there actual graduate programs, undergraduate programs in adaptation?
1: Well, I think adaptation is going to be multidisciplinary as well. So you are seeing, and I guess this is maybe one of the strengths of the conference, the fact that we are pulling all these professionals in together, that we are teaching across disciplines. I teach history, but I did a learning community with first-year students with Barbara Blonder, who teaches natural sciences. And there was a very intentional bent on talking about sea level rise and climate change throughout the entire semester of courses. And that is what we are seeing at a lot of other colleges. They're creating sustainability programs. They're creating resiliency programs. Most every community is now appointing an, a resilience officer. So there is direct internship, job-related positions. The skill set is needed for students in school and right out. The graduate schools are very much looking for students with these kinds of talents The University of Florida's graduate program, Marty co-chair here at the conference, Marty Hilton. They do 3D imaging for the United States Department of State. They've been to Myanmar, Cambodia. I do think this is going to be a great profession in the future because it's going to take historic preservation into a very future-looking way of making sure that the best of our past is preserved.
0: Okay, Leslie, I'm going to check back in with you at the end of the conference, but thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Doug.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are back at the conference, and I am with...
2: Kelsey Mullen, the Public Programs Manager for the Newport Restoration Foundation.
0: Okay, so you guys have a kind of a special relationship with this conference. What's that about?
2: We conceived of keeping history above water in 2015. It was really a selfish endeavor at that point. We were asking questions about where issues of historic preservation and the environment intersected and realized that we knew nothing, um, especially related to sea level rise, uh, which is a big issue in Newport, Rhode Island, as you might imagine. And so we convened a conference. Now, four years later, it has spawned into a constellation of activity and relationships and dynamic ideas flying back and forth, something we could never have imagined this in 2015.
0: Someone I just talked to mentioned that the idea of potentially branding, because this is focused on sea level rise, but maybe keeping uh, things frozen, or I forgot the expression, but like all these different climate impacts, you guys are focused on sea level rise, but the idea of branding and expanding the, the, the scope.
2: Certainly, it's something that we've talked about at the Newport Restoration Foundation. It's our hope to bring this conference and uh, this way of thinking and this way of bringing practitioners together to vulnerable communities across the country. When we held this conference in Annapolis in 2017, there were wildfires happening on the West Coast. And so there was a good amount of conversation around, well, why are we limiting our conversation to sea level rise? Certainly, climate impact on cultural heritage is a much broader concept than that. And I think that that is likely the future of keeping history above water. We may have to change the name, though.
0: It's my understanding that historic preservation people have a hard time sometimes finding funding and the resource is underappreciated. Tell me about those early days though, when you were kind of reaching out for partners and funders. Was there a lot of enthusiasm or was it tr- challenging?
2: It was challenging because the learning curve was so steep for us. We're a small nonprofit of 25 people. We, at that time, were a fairly traditional nonprofit and limited in scope to Newport, Rhode Island. Um, Our first endeavor was to find out who else was facing these sorts of challenges and the knowledge that they could bring to the table. That Once that ball started rolling, it picked up momentum very quickly. Funding initially for us was coming from the state of Rhode Island, primarily. We focused on one building in particular, 74 Bridge Street, which is a historically significant property that the Newport Restoration Foundation owns. And it is in the most vulnerable neighborhood and elevation in Newport that you can possibly get. And so the state was very interested in helping us look at that building as a case study for resiliency. And that's work that we are still very much engaged in today.
0: Okay. If anyone wants to learn more about what you guys are doing, any kind of recommendations where to go?
2: You can visit us at newportrestoration.org. And we also maintain the historyabovewater.org URL as well.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hey, Adapters. I am back and I'm here chatting with Dr. Andrea Dutton, an associate professor of geology at the University of Florida with a focus on sea level rise. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thanks for having me, Doug. All right. I want to give my listeners a little bit of background. So we connected at the Keeping History Above Water conference, and they're listening to you as part of this episode I'm doing for that. We got the chat briefly there, but I wanted to have a conversation and include you in this podcast. So we're having this conversation after the fact. So again, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. This conference was about sea level rise. So you made a very good guest and you are a keynote speaker there. Could you kind of just briefly summarize what you talked about?
3: Sure. So I am a geologist and I study past sea level change to try to understand what is going to happen in our future as the planet warms. Because to some extent, we can look in the past at past warm periods to understand how sensitive the ice sheets are to that warming. So the things I talked about at the conference were twofold. I talked about kind of deep past and more recent past. And with respect to the deep past, I have been studying a time period called the last interglacial. That was about 125,000 years ago. And you may wonder what that could possibly have to do, you know, relevant to today. That was before the last ice age, and the Earth was warmer then. So we can use it as a partial analog for what to expect in the future. And during that time period, global average temperature was about what it already is today. So we've already warmed up the Earth with our greenhouse gases. And when it got to that temperature last time, sea levels rose by somewhere between 20 and 30 feet above present levels which is pretty mind-blowing. It means that those ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland are in fact very sensitive to what might sound like a very small change in temperature, but in fact has a big effect. The other thing that I talked about was something kind of more recent in our past, a little bit more on human time scales to try to understand how sea level changes over decades and years. And we can do that by looking at tide gauge records. So with some of my colleagues at the University of Florida, we have been looking at tide gauge records all up and down the East Coast. And one thing that we found in particular, what actually was the reason why we got into this study in the first place, was that between 2011 and 2015, we saw an acceleration in the rate of sea level rise along the eastern U.S. that was really focused from Florida all the way up to Cape Hatteras. And so we were trying to uncover why that happened. And it turns out that these brief accelerations in sea level have happened over the past century along the U.S. eastern seaboard. And sometimes they're focused south of Cape Hatteras, sometimes they're north of Cape Hatteras. And it's actually a natural variability in the system so that as sea level rises in our future due to the warming of our planet and the melting of the ice, superimposed on top of that, we're gonna have this natural variation where we get several years of very fast sea level rise and it might slow down a little bit. So you can think of this as kind of the wiggles in a in a smooth curve of rising sea level. But what's really important about what we found is that sea level rose something like five inches in five years, which is a lot. So relative to, if you look all around the world today, the average rate of sea level rise globally is only three millimeters a year, which is the thickness of two pennies stacked on top of one another. So five inches in five years, that's like an inch a year, is a rate of sea level rise that coastal communities have not really been planning for. So understanding that this process occurs is really important when it gets down to grassroots level of planning and how are we going to adapt to these rates of sea level rise.
0: So I think that's the first time I've heard some research on the five inches in five years. I mean, as a sea level rise researcher, do you have it even in your head when you think about how the, you know, the public would finally respond? Because I know you, 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 we're in a field where like, okay, 2070, 2100, it doesn't capture the public's imagination. Do you think a five inches would be that sort of number and actually seeing that where we would see maybe come dramatic action on like actually doing something?
3: I'd like to think so, but again, so this five inches in five years has already occurred between 2011 and 2015. And since then, that rate of sea level rise has tapered off a little bit, still rising, but not quite as fast. Now, during those years, there were several record what we call king tides. That's the time of the year where the high tides are naturally higher. And they were at record levels, levels that normally are not reached unless you have like a storm surge from a hurricane. And people did notice that, and it really affected their lives. And people started to talk about this issue of sea level rise a lot more. And some communities are responding to that. But my fear is that now that we're in, you know, this few years now where that rate is slowing down a little bit, that people might become complacent again and not worry about it. Well, gradually, you know, every year, sea level is ticking a little bit higher, a little bit higher. When we get to this next pulse of these rapid rates of sea level rise, People may have forgotten what it was like before.
0: I'm curious, when you started your academic career, did you have any sense that you would be presenting at like a historic preservation conference?
3: Not at all. (laughs) So, I mean, when I started my career, I did choose something that was environmental science, right? Something that I thought was societally relevant. And that is, in part, what has always driven me as a scientist is doing something that I feel is relevant. But I never really saw this communication aspect as something that was something I planned for. It's just kind of naturally fallen out of research that I do because it is so important for us to understand the rates of sea level rise and how that's happening and what to expect. And I really enjoy connecting with the public to help them to understand and connect the dots, because ultimately I want to help people live a better life or live in a safe place right, and not be vulnerable in some of these regions that are very vulnerable to sea level rise.
0: This was a pretty receptive audience to to your message, even though it wasn't a hard science audience. But are are there groups that you're really trying to get in front of that you it might not be so easy? I mean, I don't know if you've talked to a group of politicians. Is, Is that something you're doing?
3: It is. I do. I connect with a lot of congressional staffers, and I have talked to politicians, some of my own elected officials I have met with, And I am doing that more and more. And there is more and more interest on their part, too, in becoming better educated and understanding what to do, which is really nice to see. They're not always receptive, as you've just hinted at. And and not all audiences are. But sometimes it is hard to get yourself in front of those audiences that you most want to connect with. Because I know that every time I go and give a talk somewhere, no matter where it is, People who walk through that door have already self-selected, right? They've already said, I want to go hear about this. People who don't are not going to walk through that door. And so that can be a little bit of a challenge.
0: You know what? You should go to like some random Toastmasters or something. Just how to get in front of some random crowds that would be really useful and brave of you. So I want to ask you about public speaking and being a scientist, too. And you, you, you might not agree. Agree at all with me about that. I was been thinking about this for the last couple of days, and you know, I'm a policy guy, but my background's in science. But I'm not a scientist, but I'm there, hopefully, communicating the issue of science, maybe better than some scientists, because not all of them have sort of a natural skill that you do. And it occurs me when I watch scientists present, and you guys, it, it's so difficult because especially what, with what you're dealing with, you're dealing with uncertainties and probabilities. And when you say those things, let's say you're in sort of a, a, in front of a random crowd, that part of the, the problem is that, that these people don't necessarily even care about the message. They just care about the messenger. They just want to trust you. And so when you start saying, oh, well, there's you know the probab- high probability that this is going to happen, you're almost saying, don't completely trust me on this. And you might not agree with that sort of you know, I guess description of how you're doing it. But I just sort of think, you know, some of these, like, let's say politicians, they, they have this advantage, even if they're not telling the truth that, you know, it's just this sort of gut way of explaining. And I wonder how you kind of approach that because you're a scientist, you have to qualify what you say. I get it. I understand it. But for a lot of people, that doesn't even matter. They just want to trust you.
3: Right. So there are a couple ways to approach that. One is that you meet people where they are, and you remind them that I'm I'm not just a scientist, but I'm also a person, right? And I might live in a community near theirs, or maybe in the same community. And there are a lot of things that we can connect with and that we have in common. And when you establish that kind of common baseline, they're more likely to trust you, right? Rather than just trusting scientists per se, right? So that that's one tactic, I suppose. Another thing that I like to do, and I think you saw me do this at that particular conference, is I like to flip that word uncertainty on its head. I don't usually talk so much about uncertainty. I instead say, well, in fact, we're extremely certain that sea level is going to continue to rise. No matter what projection you look at, they're all going up, right? So we need to get ready for that. And, and that makes people realize the things that we really do understand. And you're right, I have to be careful about my words. But I also try to make sure that I am using words that they can relate to. And that helps to get the message across.
0: Yeah, I, I get your approach. And, you know, in some ways, scientists kind of their hands are tied one hand behind your back when, you know, that's just the nature of science. You know, you don't deal with absolute certainties. And I, my follow up question for you to put you on the spot, let's say you're sort of <laughs> at a local county commission meeting. I'm not going to say what county or anything like that. But if someone just asked, you you know, should we allow sort of development in this area? And just knowing what you know about sea level rise or just say it's some long term thing. Would you ever be in a position saying yes or no? Would you put would you put yourself out there like that?
3: Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to provide my expert opinion on it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to basically a cost risk analysis, right? And how much risk are you willing to take? And some people might be in a financial position to take that risk. You know, maybe it's their second or third house, and they're not as concerned about that loss if it should happen. But if you're talking about someone who's been living there for generations, and that's the only home they have, and they grew up there, that's their community, you're talking about a different thing. I can't superimpose my values on someone else. And at the end of the day, that it comes down to a value judgment in this cost-risk analysis, Right. But one thing that I like to remind people when they do frame it in terms of cost risk is that it's really important to remember not just financial dollars, but cost in terms of human lives and human well-being. And that does not always get factored into those types of analyses.
0: Well, I look forward to the day when local governments, especially along the coast, are hiring sea level rise experts that are there in the thick of making those decisions. I think hopefully we're headed that way, but not quite yet. You deal with some very sobering information. Sometimes you can get a little depressed thinking about it. When you think about what you do, you know you look, you look in the past and you, you're looking for things that are actually going to tell us what might happen in the future. It's really kind of a unique thing that you're doing. It's very sobering, but what makes you hopeful about all the things that you're doing? What's really making you hopeful about what comes next?
3: One thing that makes me hopeful is when I talk to audiences and they really, my message resonates with them and they get that it's a big problem. And the first thing that they want to do is get up and go do something about it, right? And that's the reaction that they have. And that gives me a lot of hope that all those people are going out using their own skill sets to address these problems that we face. And so that gives me tremendous hope. And I also look to the youth activism that we're seeing on this issue of climate change today, which also gives me a lot of hope for our future.
0: Awesome message. I appreciate that. And thank you again for coming on and uh, thanks for the work that you're doing. I just look forward to seeing what as you're, you're bringing your science forward to the public. I look forward to just tracking what you're doing, but thanks again. Thanks, Doug. Hey, Adapters, and I am with...
4: John Regan, City Manager, City of St. Augustine.
0: Okay, so how long have you been doing that?
4: I've been with the city 21 years. I came over from Gainesville. I came over as a public works director. I'm a civil environmental engineer and came over in uh, 1998 and I've had progressively responsible assignments up to being the city manager.
0: Okay, I actually think it's kind of exciting. I go to a lot of conferences and people who work for the cities or state governments aren't necessarily there. Here you are at this conference. Why?
4: Well, first off, we help bring the conference here the city, Flagler College, and University of Florida. Sea level rise is probably the single most important issue that faces our city, and what we cannot solve our problems alone. We have to be in a collaborative environment with the federal government, the state government, county government, and so it's important that we continue that collaboration, and this is where it happens.
0: You've been doing this for a while. How has the sea level rise issue progressed over the 21 years that you've been at your job?
4: Well, when I started in 1998, the way that we would address it is that, hey, everybody, the way seawalls were designed or roads were designed were just a little too low. And we would elevate things as much as people would tolerate to solve what we would call nuisance flooding. But what we were really doing was addressing sea level rise. And so those are what I would call defensive projects, resilient projects, but uh, in 1998, we didn't necessarily call it sea level rise. We just uh, would describe it as uh, things have changed, elevations have changed, uh, we have more information, we need to design to new standards based on new technology. And then over time, we could uh, mold the conversation to uh, be climate change and sea level rise. You
0: have this kind of unique history. You've been there for a while. Do you remember when climate change and sea level rise were kind of put together and you were saying that this is something that I'm doing as part of my job?
4: Really, it was in 1999. We had a Hurricane Floyd and my house flooded. I happen to live in one of the lowest neighborhoods in St. Augustine. And we were doing a project to replace a seawall that had failed that was built in eight, the 1840s. And we were uh, I was analyzing as an engineer the data of the frequency of storms and high tide cycles and high tide amplitudes. And I realized that how uh, weather patterns have been changing in the couple decades prior to to, uh, 1999. And people don't realize how frequently we have high tides that are um, exceeding uh, category one, category two hurricane standards.
0: But I guess in the context of climate change is going to make these things worse, and you kind of build that into your job, was there sort of do you guys do sort some public workshop or that it just kind of k- k- gradually come into what you're doing? You're just seeing more of the signs kind of pop up.
4: No, we've been very proactive in this topic. We've completed a vulnerability assessment and we have conducted an adaptation area uh, planning study. We're updating our comp plan. We are uh, really on the forefront in Northeast Florida and we, we are purchasing property that is uh, adaptation areas. So we have a lot of things that are in play. Right now, and we're also right now. What we're working on is getting ourselves slotted into federal systems, so that as really big solutions emerge that have high costs, that we can look towards federal help. So we're we're working uh, Congress pretty hard.
0: Some of this is a public relations issue, and this sounds like you're doing a lot of great work, but. How do you bring the public along? Most of the people aren't realizing what we're seeing here at this conference and sort of what's projected. Is this an issue that you guys do at the city level?
4: This has been an easy conversation for our community because we went through back-to-back hurricanes. We went through Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Irma in 2016-2017. So a large fraction of our community has flooded, been through the misery of flooding. And so those storms really put the issue on, on the forefront. So we were able to really advanced the conversation with the community pretty rapidly. And also we're able to work out about $27 million in federal funding through traditional means of of FEMA through what are called hazard mitigation grants. So we have a $13 million project that is designed to help the downtown. Uh, We're elevating lift stations, pumping stations for sewage. Uh, we're elevating some roads. Uh, so we've been able to really maximize on the, f- the storm, both in public relations and in financing. You know, I hate to say it, the, the silver lining of flooding, and I personally flooded twice. I, first storm, I had 28 inches in my house. And second storm, I had 12. And it's miserable. And so our community is looking for any type of solutions that are both short and long term.
0: So all these adaptation actions you're taking, have you packaged them in a way that other cities can learn from you? Is there web resources?
4: I think we need to do a little bit more work on on how we package uh, things. We tend to be a little bit more, you know, like a get it done type of town. Uh, we just recently did a purchase of some property over on the barrier island that is a really good example of a living shoreline stabilization combined with elevation changes to solve nuisance flooding. But uh, we're pretty active in the speaker circuit. Our public works director, who's one of the speakers of the conference, Mike Cullum, is a speaker at the Florida City Managers, County City Managers Association Conference. Uh, I'm speaking later in the summer at the Environmental Permitting Summer School, which is the Florida Chamber of Commerce program. So we really, we really try to get out there with our message about St. Augustine. And that's really important. I'd encourage other communities because that's how you end up networking. That's how you find funding sources. It's how you really can find financial leverage. Th- this conference has been wonderful so far. I'm participating as much as I can. I still have to run the city. Uh, so I've been dropping in and out. Uh, one thing I learned, it's a little tough uh, going to a conference in your own hometown. <laughs> uh, but the speakers have been great. Uh, the, everyone I've met has been just awesome. Travel budget's much more manageable though, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. I have quite a bit of staff here. We have our uh, uh, preservation staff, our public work staff, myself, our public relations staff. So there's quite a bit of city uh, staff here learning, uh, supporting the conference, doing our thing. Okay, thank you so much. Doug, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are back and I am with...
5: Lisa Craig with The Craig Group.
0: Okay, so you had a special role in this conference. What was that?
5: I did, uh, because I've been involved in the other conferences, both in Newport and was the conference manager in Annapolis. I volunteered to help uh, serve on the steering committee for Keeping History Above Water St. Augustine.
0: Give me a little bit of the history about this. How did things kind of come together with the agenda and such? I mean, what, what what did you decide that you really needed to focus on at this event?
5: Well, every year we try to do a different theme. So Newport was really about the science and understanding climate change and adaptation issues from the science side in a way that individuals understood it. The average you know, cultural resource professional can understand it. When it was hosted in Annapolis, we dealt with issues of adaptation, economic impacts, and basically how you deal with buildings. Here in St. Augustine, we're really looking at the important history of the archaeological community, indigenous cultures, and issues relative to the engineering side of uh, structural changes to coastal uh, shorelines and the like.
0: So any surprises on kind of people who showed up to this event, who registered?
5: I think we got quite a bit of diversity, uh, floodplain managers, which is a really important role in the work that we're doing in adaptation. Uh, so that was important. We had quite a number of state and local historic preservation officers. That's been pretty typical, but we haven't been able to really get a lot of folks from the southeast region, and this year we did. And then the archaeology community, we really were pretty fortunate to have a number of those folks within archaeology, both in the United States and internationally, come to represent their concerns and issues relative to adaptation.
0: So you have a strong history with the city of Annapolis. You know all sorts of things that they've done, some innovative things, but What's the difference between Annapolis? Annapolis seems like it's an area that has access to a lot of funds that maybe St. Augustine doesn't have, but what, what do you see the positive that maybe St. Augustine's doing that you didn't see in Annapolis in all your work there?
5: I think St. Augustine has taken very purposeful incremental steps. They've actually done some major structural improvements to their seawall bulkheads. They are demonstrating at a national level leadership on the issue of planning, and they understand that they need to take advantage of the funding that is coming from FEMA on the various disasters that have occurred here to actually prepare for, not just recover from flooding and hurricane disasters investors.
0: Okay, so you were involved with a workshop today with the National Park Service. What yes. was that all about?
5: Uh, the National Park Service is really trying to work very closely with local and state governments and architects, contractors, to identify the appropriate way to elevate, to adapt historic buildings to future conditions of everything from tidal flooding to hurricane events to extreme winds and even wildfires. How do we adapt historic buildings? So that they still retain some sense of the historic character, but at the same time can meet the guidance required by FEMA as it relates to the National Flood Insurance Program and just the issues, general issues of public safety in the face of natural disasters.
0: I asked this question before, but I want to ask you this is that when someone asked for a show of hands of how many people were from St. Augustine, I was pretty shocked at how many local people were actually at this event at previous Keeping History Above Waters. Did you have that kind of local turnout?
5: We had pretty good local turnout, I think, both in Newport and in Annapolis. But I think what was important here is the city of St. Augustine invested in a community values workshop just months before uh, this conference. And I was fortunate enough to be able to work with the community to measure issues relative to what was important to them in regards to cultural resource protection, their own knowledge and values related to adapting their historic properties themselves, and also what they wanted to see in terms of city leadership on the issue so i think they were more informed than at previous conferences and therefore we got a really great local turnout
0: what would be sort of a dream location thinking about everything you want to accomplish and like maybe what you haven't done yet where, where would you really like to take keeping history above water for the for the next year
5: Well, I'll I'll be honest, I think we've done a lot of workshops here on the East Coast. I know uh, our colleagues in Massachusetts, which have a very strong statewide program, would are are considering hosting it there. We'd like to see it go to somewhere in the uh, Texas region, but being Californian, I would like to see it come to California because I think this is uh, a time when uh, West Coast states really need to start looking not just at issues of climate change as it relates to carbon emissions and greenhouse gases and all the other things that they're dealing with, but adaptation. And I think that that is what we like to see happen in the West Coast.
0: And lots of different people showing up to this. Engineers, federal government employees, city city employees. Were there sort of blind spots? And like, let's say my listeners out there represent different sectors. Who would you kind of like to take an interest in this that might show up at a future event?
5: Um, I think we started to get the environmental community, those that are dealing with nature-based approaches to um, adaptation. I'd really like to see more of our environmental friends joining us. And again, why I think maybe doing relocating this to the West Coast, where there's a greater sense of environmental protection and stewardship, that might be a, a way to go. So, so I think that that's the one audience that we need to engage more.
0: Okay, so if there's someone on the West Coast who would like to help post this, how, who, how would they kind of reach out via this podcast? Who should they talk to?
5: They should contact the Newport Restoration Foundation and talk to Mark Thompson there, who is the executive director. I sit on one of the steering committees, and so we'd love to be able to talk with them about ways in which we can bring this workshop to their community, their state, their region, and adapt for future conditions uh, on the West Coast or anywhere else that's interested in this issue.
0: Any final thoughts?
5: I think that this conference is creating a sense of is this creating a greater awareness within the cultural resource community that we didn't have before. We're all very used to dealing with issues of saving historic places. But saving historic places from what is Basically, future conditions of that we don't have a lot of control over. Mother Nature is something we really haven't dealt with before, and I think it's critical that we start dealing with it now and planning for it. And the only way we'll do it is if we start working together um, inter- in an interdisciplinary fashion.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, it happens. We are back at the conference, and I am with...
6: Emily Jane Murray with the Florida Public Archaeology Network.
0: Tell me what that's all
7: about.
6: So the Florida Public Archaeology Network is a statewide nonprofit that works to help protect and promote Florida's buried past. We do a lot of outreach and education. We assist local governments, and we assist the uh, State Division of Historic Resources and state land managers with managing resources and professional development.
0: So you were sort of mentioning before I started recording with you a little bit about citizen science. What's that all about?
6: Yeah, we got approached by a planner who was working on a master plan for a historic cemetery and she was like, well, if you look at the maps, it's going to be underwater. What do I do? What are people doing about, uh, you know, resources like this? And we said, well, let us go find out. So we went and did a bunch of resources and, uh, realized, you know, the threat to archaeological sites here in Florida is, is pretty big as well as other things like historic cemeteries. And basically the management strategy for a lot of these sites is abandoned in place. Uh, and there's not really a lot you can do long term. You can try to put shoreline stabilizations in to stop things like erosion for a short period of time, but eventually the waters will come. So we started uh, Heritage Monitoring Scouts (HMS Florida) and it's a program to get folks out monitoring the archaeological sites. So it's both to collect data about them, to look at which sites are being impacted, you know, do some ground truthing for the modeling that we've done, but also to get people out to enjoy the sites, right, before they're gone. Get out there and learn from them and experience them and, and really see what it's all about.
0: So, as you train the citizen scientists, obviously there's probably some background training. What's sort of the climate change training aspect of that?
6: Well, we talk a lot about sea level rise. I think is the number one big long term issue we're we'll having in Florida. So, we we do talk a little bit about the modeling, um, and looking at what sites will be affected and where they'll be affected. And we talk about, you know, some of the other climate change is also causing. Issues to worsen. So flooding, we're seeing a lot of erosion is, is, you know, happening at the sites. So some of the sites are going away much quicker. Um, and the hurricanes that occurred here in, in Florida really <laughs> did uh, a lot of damage to some of the sites we were looking at. We lost like eight feet of coastal shoreline, which was a 6,000 year old shellman between the two storms.
0: The work that you do, what at this conference is really relevant to what you're doing?
6: It's been great to talk with other people who are trying to figure these same kind of projects out. Um, I talked with a gentleman from Australia, the folks from Scotland. You know, they're also trying to use citizen science to kind of track these effects at the sites. And, and you know, wh- where do we go from there? What's the next step? How do we triage and, and kind of address the issues? But I think, you know, citizen, we have so many people, so that's a great resource to target and to see the ways in which they engage the public can be helpful.
0: Okay, so if people are interested in maybe replicating some of the work that you're doing, do you have some resources available?
6: Yeah, we have a lot of stuff on our website, um, fpan.us, fpan.us, uh, and we developed it. You know, Heritage Monitoring Scouts. It's HMS Florida, so we're like, come, come, borrow it, come replicate the program. We'd love to see an HMS South Carolina and an HMS Georgia and an HMS anywhere.
8: Okay,
0: perfect. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Hey, Adapters, we are back at the conference, and I am with.
9: Katie Jacob, and I am with the Preservation Foundation of Palm Beach. We are a nonprofit organization that celebrates the architectural and cultural heritage of the town of Palm Beach, which is located in Southeast Florida. It is a barrier island.
0: Give my listeners some examples of what are some of the cultural resources that exist down in Palm Beach.
9: So probably the one that is most known is Mar-a-Lago. If you don't know that, <laughs> uh, you haven't been watching the news. <laughs>
0: So do you give tours of Mar-a-Lago?
9: No, it is close to the public. It is now known as the Winter White House. But it was originally built by Marjorie Weatherpost in the 1920s, kind of as her estate.
0: You are there in, in promotion of tourism. People are there to learn about the, these cultural resources down there. You're here at this event on Sea Level Rise. Why is that?
9: So we're mainly an advocacy and educational organization. We have our building and then we have a native plants garden there. Uh, so what we do is we help, we are a membership organization. So we promote kind of learning not only about the island, but about preservation in general. Last year was the first year we were allowed to discuss climate change and sea level rise within the town. I don't know if anybody knows about kind of Florida politics. So climate change has never been uh, a fully accepted policy down in South Florida. But last year, the flood insurance prices went up. So our board was like, we need to be relevant. So we were finally allowed to bring in speakers to talk about sea level rise. So it really was a great thing to be able to come to this conference to kind of showcase that we can talk about flooding issues and how it affects our cultural environment
0: the insurance issue loan was the trigger that pushed you guys.
9: Yes. Yes. Truly, it comes down to money.
0: (laughs) That's good to know. Okay. So what have you learned in the last couple of days? Uh, How how is it going to be helpful to you?
9: I think it's learning that like how many resources really come in to protecting the built environment. I mean, it's not just about raising a building, which I think people almost find is an easy fix. It really, there are stormwater issues. There are erosion issues. There is like the fact that particularly in Palm Beach, we are a barrier island. Kind of the best way of describing that I've heard is it is kind of like the spider web of Florida. I mean, it's just, it's going to go at some point. And I think that's hard for people to really realize. We have very senior constituents where we are. I mean, there aren't really long-term thoughts there because that's where they go to retire. They're not there really building their families. There are generational communities there, but they always have second homes other places. So, I mean, it's totally – it's a very different vibe. Uh, However, they want to protect what they have there now and they'll work on it there has been more studies going on. So it's definitely you can see the flooding issues happening. Um, The king tides are higher. And you see that for people who have been going there as kids during the winter months. And they're like, this has never flooded before. So I mean, they're definitely seeing it. They just don't really want to discuss why it's happening.
0: The public is coming to your events and you bring these speakers who are going to talk about all these issues. And so have you purposely, you know, recruited speakers that are talking about sea level rise?
9: Yes. So this year, we launched our water rising series. And each so our season runs January through April. And that's when most people are in town to come to our events. That's when our members are in town. And that's kind of our season. Once a month, we had a specific lecture dedicated to sea level rise. So we brought in very similar speakers to who were at the conference today. So Jeff Goodell came to speak on his book. We had Dr. Sandra Whitehouse uh, speak kind of on the science of sea level rise. We had uh, Lisa Craig come speak on adaptive reuse plans. And then we had Ashley Wilson, who is the Graham Grant Architect for the National Trust, come speak on kind of their plans on raising buildings and things like that and how that can help in a flood event and kind of more creative solutions. She works specifically with the Farnsworth House, and they are working on making a hydraulic system to lift the house for the floodplain rather than moving it or doing anything. So these really interesting engineering solutions that are happening uh, kind of outside of the box.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> hey, Adapters, we're back at the Keeping History Above Water Conference, and I am with...
10: Brianna of Place Economics...
0: What is that and what do you do there?
10: So Place Economics is a consulting firm, private sector consulting firm based in Washington, DC. And we work at the intersection of economics and historic preservation. I'm our director of research. So our principal is a man named Donovan Ripkema, who's been involved with preservation economics for longer than I've been alive. I've been with the firm five years. And so oftentimes we end up in discussions with clients. We decide we're going to research this, 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 and this, and it's my job to find data that hopefully tells us something to be able to answer those questions. But most of our clients are either government, municipalities, or local nonprofits.
0: Okay, so you're here at this conference and there's a lot of academics, there's nonprofit organizations, not a lot of private sector folks. And So why is that?
10: We're here primarily for R&D. Like We're curious. We want to make sure that we're and our research methods are on the cutting edge of, of preservation analysis. And so oftentimes we, in our analysis, in terms of doing like an economic impact study, we would look at areas that are historic districts compared to areas of the city that are not historic districts and kind of look at what's different with those areas. And so we think that methodology can totally be applied with a changing climate, changing sea level rise lens and we're mostly here to do research, just like you are, to find out, hey, what, what should we be doing and how does this intersect with with our existing work?
0: This notion of a, a, a for-profit incentive in regards to historic preservation, to me that there's an opportunity there that maybe these folks that, you know, a lot of times people just take historic preservation for granted and they're underfunded and such, but if there's sort of a profit motive, is there stuff in, the, in your R&D that you're doing that you can kind of share back with them saying... You might actually make a more convincing argument to get funding for what you're doing because of these profit motives.
10: Mm-hmm. Oftentimes our work, some of it's not all that complicated. You know, you as a city government could do it on your own, but sometimes having a more neutral third party say the same thing or bring in the outside perspective can help push your decision making body, you know, in the right direction that you would need. The example here is, Hey, we need to help private homeowners raise their buildings, and that's expensive, and we're going to have a carrot over here and a stick over here. We as a private sector might help develop methods to look at what, how much should that carrot be that would make a difference and actually change people's behavior.
0: Okay, so any presentations have stood out for you?
10: Mm, I really love the tribal perspectives because I feel as a field that's not a group we always interact with on the national scale, you know, this is a national conference. So, but there are a whole group of tribal historic preservation officers and they have their own funding mechanisms and own governmental structure, uh, you know, as they discussed this afternoon. So that would be interesting to look, particularly for those communities, as they mentioned, are, a lot of them are are very vulnerable to climate change impacts and have a lot of historic resources. So I'd be very interested to look at that intersection more moving forward.
0: So what's your academic background? What, what do you do to get to where you're at right now?
10: I'm the kid that was like on my city main street board when I was 16, you know, trying to get volunteer hours <laughs> and trying to build my resume to get into college. So I always thought I wanted to be a planner in an old town. I grew up in a historic town in Virginia. I continued that path through school. I went to William Mary for undergrad uh, in the University of Pennsylvania, program for historic preservation. And that time at my boss... He teaches a class on preservation economics at the University of Pennsylvania. I just kind of fell into it with a, a love for my hometown. What's fascinating Field's taking me all over the country and sometimes internationally. So I love how interdisciplinary preservation is. You know, there's more PhDs in this room than I've certainly been at a conference with before. And that's pretty cool to see them be able to under- take their science knowledge and our you know heritage legal pro- process and procedures knowledge and be able to put two and two together to uh, all have the same goal of revitalized communities that are livable.
0: Partly what I was getting at do you sense like that you're here at this keeping history above water conference? Do you feel like in some ways you're an adaptation professional now? Has your your work and your focus area kind of taken to that area? You're in the business of climate change?
10: I would not call myself a professional. I'm still very much learning, but very eager to learn.
0: But you see it as like, okay, you're learning on the job and this is going to become front and center in the years ahead.
10: Absolutely. I do think that as preservation municipalities and states and even at the federal level, as we, we move forward as a field with whatever our legislative asks are, changing climate and adaptation will have to be a part of that discussion. So we often provide incentives recommendations to cities. So they may start being, you know, asking us to look at, at climate impacts. And so we want to be ready to be able to provide that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Hey, doctors. I am back here at the Keeping History Above Water Conference, and I am with a hair of mine, Jeff Goodell, former guest on the show. Hey, Jeff. Nice to meet you in person. Good to meet you too, Doug. Okay, so why did they bring you in here?
11: <laughs> Good question. <laughs> the voice of doom. <laughs> well, I
0: don't think it's that. that's the way. But, you know, stepping back a little bit, your book, The Waters Will Come, It's been about a year and a half now, I think, since the book came out. And once you were on the podcast originally, I'm just curious, what has the response been? You do a lot of public speaking around it. Has there been any surprises associated with all these meeting people who have read the book?
11: Well, I think the most interesting thing that's happening is that I've just noticed a big change in in awareness of this, even in the last two years. I do do a lot of talking around the world. I'm going to Singapore literally like this afternoon to talk to a bunch of bankers there who are concerned about investment, their investments and how to think about this from a sort of you know financial point of view. And I think that, you know, the recent changes in, you know, the things we've been seeing with weather and, and just sort of the broader awareness of climate change, now it's what it just polled as the number one issue in the uh, upcoming election. All the Democratic candidates are talking about it. I think Trump's pushback against climate change has is, is actually awakened a lot of people. So I'm actually quite surprised at the sort of level of interest and uh, awareness of this in the last couple of years. That's interesting thing that a lot of presidential candidates are not really shying away from.
0: I think Governor Inslee from Washington State, when you do a campaign, there's a lot of PR people, campaign people, put a, a lot of thought into pitching an issue are you in contact with those folks? Do you think they're, they're going to have success where others might have failed over the last 20 years?
11: Well, I mean, I, I, I think that these politicians are responding to this sort of groundswell of interest from, from the world. I mean, I think that it's because of things like the Green New Deal and all of the attention that that has been getting. Greta Thunberg, the 15-year-old uh, Swedish activist who's been talking a, a lot at the UN and other places... Who's been kind of galvanized the world in awareness of the implications of this for young people? So I think that these candidates are responding to all of that, and you have certain some of the candidates like Jay Inslee from Washington, who's making it his number one thing. And his Jay has long been, uh, you know, uh, aware of this, and it's been uh, he's been on the forefront of this for a long time. I don't think Jay's going to be the nominee, but he is out there really pushing it hard. But you see it in 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 all the candidates and it's a big difference than it was in 2016. And I think it's partly because the politics of it are are changing fast. I think that the you're seeing big, you know, investment houses like BlackRock and others that are, you know, writing reports about the financial risk from from climate change, I think so. I think there's a lot of money that's concerned about this now. I think that's driving some of the change too. So I don't know. It's a. It's actually a, in its own way, a kind of inspiring moment. During your
0: presentation yesterday, you were at sort of at the end, you talked about how coastal areas are going to adjust, and you know, floating cities and all these sort of new things that are happening. And I was, I guess, I was a little surprised. I, I don't know if I'm thinking what you were really saying, but you were more comfortable. I don't know if you were encouraging it, but. You're just like, oh, these are, it came off, I don't know. It's like, I don't know if you were encouraging it, but I was surprised because I, you know, to get to that stage now, you're sort of giving up in other areas and you're allowed to think that. I was I was surprised to hear that, that you're like, oh, these are going to be sort of these kind of positive developments in coastal areas.
11: Yeah. I mean, I think that another thing that I've been seeing in the last year and a half traveling around talking about my book is a lot of incredibly interesting creative thinking about how we're going to live with water. You know, people love water. We want to live by water. We're going to live by water. There's been a lot of really interesting work in floating cities, urban architecture, landscape architecture, looking at using canals and all kinds of, there's just, you know, a million, every coastal city practically has their own design about how they're going to deal with this. And I think it's really easy to imagine figuring out new ways of living with water. And we're seeing, you know, places like the Maldives, Singapore, China, all these places are are kind of essentially building new land on the coast that is higher, and instead of trying to sort of essentially fix the old places, they're just building new places. And you know, there's a long history of that. San Francisco, Miami, a lot of a lot of cities are built on landfill around the water, and we're going to see more of that. New York City just announced a new plan for Lower Manhattan that is basically about building out into the harbor and the East River, because it's easier to do that than to try to protect what's there. And they can build a kind of high kind of build on a a mound, essentially elevate the ground on the river and do both things, do things at one time, which is give coastal protection to what's there and have new land to develop in real estate so they can finance it that way. I think think it's pretty exciting, the vision of kind of new kinds of living with water that is flexible, that takes climate change and sea level rise into account. The problem is what's going to happen with all the old stuff and how that's going to play out. And, you know, I've talked very bluntly about there's going to be huge economic losses, there's going to be places that are gonna be written off, there are gonna be people that are gonna be left behind. This is not a happy story. This is very a story of people who are saved and people who are who were not. And you know, it's just those that boundary I think is becoming clearer and clearer to me. We're at a historic preservation conference and you've been talking to
0: a lot of different groups What's your sense of all the different sectors thinking about sea level rise? Is the historic preservation society sector really getting it compared to others?
11: I think the historic society sector is really at the forefront of a lot of these fights. Uh, I think some of them get it. Uh, They certainly get the risk. uh, The problem is what to do about it. And it's a real issue because you can't save everything. And you have to decide what you do want to save and then how you're going to save it and how you make these decisions about that and how you calculate cultural and artistic and historical value is a very complicated question. And they're under a lot of pressure from developers uh, who would like to knock down a lot of historic stuff in order to build more resilient things and increase tax revenues and things like that. Cities like um, Charleston, we have uh, enormous historical areas Uh, with really, you know, have a lot of, there's a lot of complexity and how do you, you can't just raise the houses. I mean, you can raise houses, but it, it begins to change the fabric of the neighborhoods in a huge way. So I think that the big idea is that preservationists and historians are coming to around to is this notion that preservation means change that they have to change how they think about preserving things that the old idea that we're just going to you know save this house and everything will be fine is no longer viable and now this house or this neighborhood will have to either be moved or elevated and lots of money put into it uh or other kinds of protection or else written off and those are really hard decisions and that's they're really on the forefront of that right now in real time Okay,
0: can you give us a sneak peek of any big stories that you're working on?
11: Uh, Well, no, not really. I'm going to write a big piece about my, uh, I just went to Antarctica for two months to look at the risk of collapse of Thwaites Glacier, and I'm going to write a big story about that. Okay, thank you so much, Jeff, and it's been a pleasure meeting you in person. Thanks, Doug. great to see you.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are back at the conference, and I am with...
12: Marcy Rockman, uh, who is currently representing International Council on Monuments and Sites, known as ECOMOS, and a new proprietor of a consulting company called Lifting Rocks Climate and Heritage Consulting.
0: Marcy, people are probably familiar with your name. You were a recent guest on the podcast. We had a nice long conversation about your time at the National Park Service and all things cultural resources. It was lovely to have you on.
12: Thank you very much.
0: So you are here at this event with me. It was only a couple weeks since we uh, sort of published that episode. Why are you here? Why is this event important to you?
12: In part, I'm presenting some of the work that I'm doing with ECOMOS tomorrow morning. My main role with that is to better figure out how to better represent the work heritage in the reports and work of the IPCC the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we're making progress in doing that, but there's more work to do, and we need to basically mobilize the heritage community to be part of this effort. It's not something I can do myself. So I'm here to report on the scope of the project, what we're doing, where we're going, and how people can help.
0: Okay, I obviously don't know that much about the heritage community. This, Keeping History Above Water, really is focused on sea level rise. Is it sort of the premier climate change conference for historic preservation, or are there other people looking at other climate impacts?
12: This is a really good question. It's something that's really been on my mind seeing this conference because I was at the first Keeping History Above Water up in Newport in 2016. And that was really the first conference that I'm aware of that brought together, it was basically a practitioner's conference, brought together planners, engineers, archaeologists and everyone around the topic of keeping history above water. And it's really, I think, kept that framework, though with a very local focus, So there was Newport, then there was Annapolis, and now there's, we're, we're learning a lot about St. Augustine in this conference, which on the one hand is a really good thing. What I'm concerned about is that it's, we do need that practitioners, how do we deal with the really bigger issues? Things like the IPCC. Just now there's the international session starting, so hopefully that will give a slightly bigger perspective on all of that. Uh, going forward. So I think it's a constant balancing back and forth, getting the really key local case studies, but then also giving a chance for people working in different areas to have their say. One idea that's come up a couple of times in conversations is trying to take the keeping history brand, but moving it over to some other impacts, like keeping history unburnt or, you know, out somewhere out west, uh, keeping history frozen up in the Arctic, keeping history alive or in mind for traditional and indigenous cultures. We need to expand the range of impacts that are being discussed because sea level rise is the charismatic megafauna of climate impacts, but it's not the only one, and so there's still a lot more work to do.
0: I think that's a great idea, brand the idea and just expand it and yeah. you probably attract a whole new suite of participants. Just a, a wrap-up for tomorrow in your presentation, are there going to be materials or products that are going to be available for other people to kind of tap into that aren't here?
12: In the short answer, no, because this is a very initial report on progress. Uh, what I can say is that ECOMOS is really trying to mobilize the global community for heritage and literally global other nations to help connect with the IPCC. And we'll be taking a concept note to the Next World Heritage Committee to try to really get that engagement off the ground. So that's basically what I will be telling people tomorrow and then really encouraging them to help with peer review and serving as authors on future IPCC reports. Awesome. One more thing I wanted to mention, and this is Doug, I'm going to counter one of the points that you made in your short presentation here about heritage being the charismatic megafauna of the built environment. And one of the issues that I think a lot of people are tackling, or we're not really calling it out well in this conference because we're trying to focus on what's positive, is the problem is that heritage isn't the charismatic megafauna. We are not We are not usually visible. We are not what most people think of when we look at issues facing cities and communities. We usually have to jump, those of us who care about it have to jump up and down and wave our hands. And IPCC is actually a case example of this because their next planned special report is on cities and climate change. Heritage currently has no role. It has no defined place in that report. So they scoped an entire IPCC special report that does not include Heritage. And it's not because we didn't try. I was on several proposals to be part of that scoping meeting, and our proposals were not accepted. We've now had some IPCC staff go, wait a minute, I think maybe we need heritage due to some other outreach, and they're trying to pull us in, which is great. So we have something to build on. But how you can have that many city planners, people who deal with cities, scoping a special meeting, and the historic built environment apparently occurred to no one, that's one of the other challenges that we're facing and dealing with.
0: Marcy delivering the cold hard truth. I was asked to present at this conference and I was giving a like a pep talk, an inspirational talk. And I, you can bring it back down. I get it. But that's absolutely a great point. Marcy, it was delightful to see you in person. I rarely get to see you.
12: I know. It's good to see you too. And that's what I do at Keeping History Above Water. I pour cold water on your ideas. So thank you again. Glad to, great to talk with you again.
0: Hey, adapters. We're back here at the Keeping History Above Water Conference and I'm with...
8: Mallory Hopkins I am a recent graduate of Flagwood College here in st. Augustine I produced a film the oldest city underwater and I'm back working on another project I live and work in Jacksonville Florida
0: okay so tell me about your first film it was an award-winning film right what what did you really talk about in that film
8: my first film I really focused on sea level rise kind of as a topic in specifically st. Augustine because We have such a unique situation here with heavy tourism, a lot of traffic, but also a lot of really important historic buildings like we have at Flagler College, the Main building is 250 years old. We have the last standing 17th century fortification, which is the Castillo de San Marcos, um, which is all at risk. You know, a lot of these buildings are at or below sea level, at the minimum sea level. So all of this is at risk. We got hit with two hurricanes in a row in 2016, then 2017 with Matthew and then Irma. So kind of we have a lot of national eyes on the city because it's the oldest city. There's a lot going on here, and there's a lot to lose, which is kind of what I focus on in the film. And what can we do? What's the next step?
0: Okay, making film is a relatively ambitious thing. Was there some single moment where you're like, you know what, I'm making a film about all this?
8: There was kind of a lot of little moments. I remember seeing this film made by this company called Adaptation Now, and they did it kind of about the Keeping History Above Water conference that was up in Norfolk, Virginia, I believe. And they made a film all about that and what they were dealing with. And I had no idea what was going on up there. I had no idea that people were waking up and putting their feet on the floor next to their bed and feeling water. You know, It was just something that I had no idea what was going on. And I kind of got the impression that there's a lot of people in this country that don't know what's going on here. A lot of people don't know that St. Augustine is the oldest city in the country. They don't know that it's like 450 years old not only that but also what we're dealing with we just got hit by two hurricanes so many people here are vulnerable to that you know nuisance flooding and the storm flooding so i just kind of wanted to give that to other people in that same kind of packaged format where i could just be like this is what's happening here this is what we're going to do about it and this is what needs to happen
0: okay so you you made the film it's been received very well but i'm sure you want as many St. Augustiners or however you call yourselves to watch it. What what have you been doing, or what sort of happened for that to, uh, for more people to see the film?
8: So I originally, when I first released it, or I had a private screening. So I kind of showed everyone that was in it. Um, anyone who I wanted to see it, invited them. Um, And then it was in the Fort Lauderdale Film Festival, and then it was the St. Augustine Film Festival, which was really my main goal, was to have it shown to a St. Augustine audience. Because I think that I have a message in the film that a lot of locals can relate to. They love it here. They want to keep it the way it is. They want to continue to live here. But we're going to have to make some changes in order to do that, in order to keep life comfortable here in St. Augustine. So I just really wanted to kind of give them... A wake-up call if they hadn't already woken up, if that makes any sense, and just understand how important this is. And that when you do learn about it, it can feel very hopeless, but, you know, a lot of people are rallying behind it, and a lot of people want to see this city thrive.
0: Okay. Has there been any sort of negative reaction? Anyone who just was, you know what, this is not going to happen?
8: Not really, actually. It's had a pretty—I think that people in St. Augustine have a pretty good understanding which is good. Some people just aren't really willing to take the action. But, you know, that happens everywhere. Um, I did have one person who I was out filming, and he was like, asking me questions. And I started talking about it, and he pretty much started, you know, referencing all these articles, saying that climate change is a hoax, and that sea level rise isn't really happening in St Augustine that St Augustine's not really at risk and that it's all a lie and like it's all like a ploy by local government to like get our money you know like all of that and you know that was kind of like you know made me chuckle i'm not going to take him seriously but i think it's important to listen to people who they may be wrong that's fine but it's important to listen to them because People on the other side aren't ever going to listen to you if you don't listen to them first. So even though that guy was kind of out there, I still wanted to hear what he had to say.
0: So I watched it. It's a great film. Congratulations. Is there any chance? Because I mean, it's not like bol- really political, like local schools be willing to to show it. A little elementary and middle schools and high schools, is there opportunities for that to happen?
8: Um, I have been in contact with a couple local organizations that I'm hoping to do screenings with soon. But I also, now that the film festival circuit is kind of over, I did just submit it to the Jacksonville Film Festival, so I'm waiting to hear back from them. But once that's kind of over, I want to put it publicly on my website so that anyone can watch it. If they want to show it at local schools, they can. I don't have to be there. They can just show it. My name's in it, so I'm not really worried about that as long as I get recognition and just kind of have it as if people want to show it in a packaged way like that and have it all there in like 14 minutes it's there and ready for them to use if they want to use it as like an educational tool.
0: Okay. So it's not available now. If someone wants to watch it. They can't watch it, but the, in the near future it, heading to YouTube and all those kind of yes. a- avenues.
8: Yep. I have an online portfolio, MalloryHopkins.com, and I want to have it there publicly for anyone and on YouTube and wherever people can access it.
0: What is the name or what is the topic of the film that you're working on right now? And when can we expect to see that come out?
8: The film I'm working on now is very much a work in progress. Nothing is really set in stone. I'm kind of feeling out where it's going to go because I really want to focus on the progress that comes from this conference and like kind of what's next for St. Augustine. Because I feel like in the first film, I focused on a lot of the doom and gloom, a lot of the hurricane effects and things like that. So now I really want to focus on real solutions and real action the working title is Learning to Swim because St. Augustine's going to have water whether we like it or not. It's just kind of about learning to deal with it. <laughs>
0: and yeah. we'll get that on a t-shirt for the title. Last question, what's your favorite spot if someone was visiting St. Augustine? What would you recommend to them?
8: That is tough. There are so many. I really like going to the pier at St. Augustine Beach. I think they charge you like a dollar to go out there, but it's it's worth it. It's cool to see. You know, the waves crashing beneath you. And, and honestly, just there's a lot of you kind of have to go everywhere in St. Augustine because I went to school here for four years and I kind of finally found the places to go like towards the end of that. There's so many hidden gems in St. Augustine that you really just kind of have to find. And the people here are incredible, too, because a lot of people feel that same way about the community, about the locals, about everything here.
0: All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Adapters, I am back at the conference and I'm with... Marty Hilton. I'm the Director of Historic Preservation at the University of Florida. Marty was the first person to reach out to me and it was thank you, Marty, for inviting me to this conference. This has been great. Okay, I guess stepping back a little bit. Um, You're at the University of Florida in the Historic Preservation Department. Could you explain what you guys do over there?
13: Sure. The Historic Preservation is a program at the University of Florida. We cut across other units, very multidisciplinary. Within our own College of Design, Construction, and Planning, we have architecture, landscape architecture, urban and regional planning, tier design, building construction. But we also reach out across campus, anthropology, history, tourism. We have a master's program. We have a PhD program. And students are really research-focused. And one of our core focus areas is
0: resiliency in historic coastal communities and heritage science. I've picked up, and not just at this conference, with my own experience with historic preservation people, and that maybe it's not valued as much. When we think of the built environment, you guys really have to advocate the value of what historic preservation means for a community. Why is that? You know, I've asked myself
13: that question a lot. I think people tend to take for granted the history and the stories and the culture and everything that's embedded in their built environment. To borrow a term, I think the National Trust for Historic Preservation called millennials accidental preservationists. And I think that a lot of people care about the same things we care about as preservationists, but they're not necessarily doing it in a very deliberate, sort of thoughtful way like we are. For me, I preservation, people often question preservation about freezing things in time, even that term, preserve, right? Like, it's what my grandmother did, right, <laughs> with vegetables or whatever. And it's really not that at all. I think you got the sense you're all about adaptation. I mean, preservationists manage change, and we do it sensitively. We do it in a way that helps reflect the values of communities and stakeholders and keep the things they care about, the buildings, the places. But we are, we think across decades, right, centuries. So how do we transfer all the things that we care about to the future? Right. That's what preservation is
0: about. And what I've learned, too, is that I had a very generic sense of historic preservation. It's like, oh, you're just handling antiques or something. And I've learned over the last couple of days of how sophisticated it is, the technical aspect of it. But I'm curious, at the University of Florida, or do you know of other programs where this notion of communicating the value, is this part of your program? Do you have a specific, like, again, the, the, to me, my own advice, this should be a core area. Not only are you helping them in historic preservation, but helping them identify why it's important is this part of your program yeah it absolutely is and
13: it's part of most There are uh, nearly 40 graduate programs in historic preservation across the country and the first thing that you do when you identify you have a a heritage resource you know culturally significant historically architecturally is that you you really look to see who are the people the stakeholders the community that really cares for it right preservation is not about buildings it's about people And it's about the values that people associate with these places. So that's one of the key tenets of everything that we do. It's called values-based approach to preservation or management. We at the University of Florida are really strong believers in that kind of engagement and not being the experts coming in and saying this is what should be done, but really listening and working kind of shoulder by shoulder with the people in a community to help address a need.
0: Okay, I saw part of a presentation today. Can you briefly describe this project you're doing? Where you are using drones, and you're doing some mapping, and how is it relevant to sea level rise?
13: So one of our
0: focus areas at the University of Florida is uh,
13: digital technologies, digital imaging. So we've now, for the last seven years, been doing terrestrial laser scanning. We use a process called photogrammetry. We use drone imaging, and we're digitally documenting historic places, heritage sites. And what we've done now over the last three years... We've increasingly been asked, we are based here in Florida, to get involved in issues of short-term flooding, nuisance flooding, that sort of thing, and longer-term sea level rise and its impact on historic coastal communities and properties. So we've been taking that digital technology and we've developed a process where we're projecting, kind of modeling sea level rise scenarios and doing vulnerability assessments of properties. The amazing thing about what we do is it's highly rapid and it's highly accurate. So we're able to capture kind of physical environments in very short periods of time up to like two to four millimeters of accuracy so it's a pretty powerful tool and
0: technology any standout presentations or topics that you've kind of learned from at the conference
13: you know i they all have been really excellent and that's the That's the feedback that I've gotten from participants. I think the great thing about this conference, I I attended and participated in the one in Annapolis, and when I was asked to co-host this one, I was very enthusiastic because I think it's one of the better conferences I've attended in years. And I think that's because it is, A, because it is multidisciplinary. It's not just scientists talking, which we had. It's not just policymakers, which we also had. But it's, it's the full range of disciplines, experts, people. We had a lot of just residents here, right? And elected officials who are all having to address this issue either on a personal level or citywide or what have you. So I like that it's, it's a little bit of everything, this conference. I think you can, you can take something away from every presentation. And I like that it doesn't focus on, again, a particular profession or discipline doesn't focus on a particular scale we looked at right regional level statewide level we looked at citywide level we've looked at how do we deal as a property owner like maybe elevating your house like we've looked at all of those different scales
0: yeah i think someone asked yesterday raise their hand of local residents st augustine residents and it was at least a quarter or a third of the room raised their hand and i don't think i've ever been to a national conference where you had such local participation so that's kind of exciting yeah, you know, I I've now been in Florida over 10
13: years. St. Augustine is, uh, you know, America's oldest continually operated, you know, European settlement and it's got an amazing history and people I love I've come to love St. Augustine and the residents here really do love it and they are very progressive I think in their thinking and very focused on I think relevant issues that are impacting their way of life, quality of life. And so I think having that kind of attendance, right, from St. Augustine's just really demonstrates that, how much people really care. And and people, I talked to a lot of residents, they were like, we're here to educate ourselves. And what can we do,
0: right, as citizens of the world? Yeah, I wish he was still here, actually. At the happy hour last night, I had a conversation with someone who's attending. He's like a patent lawyer. And he said he's at the event just to learn. And a lot of these things have just blowing his mind. But I've just, like was... Taken aback that this guy just is signing up for this dense conference, and he's just there as a concerned citizen. Yeah, it, it is a dense conference,
13: right? I mean, it's a lot of information, right? And yeah, I I spoke to again a citizen. She actually was from New Jersey. She wasn't even locally, but she's getting ready to move to Florida, not far from here. And she's like, you know, this is an extremely. She has children and grandchildren, and she said, "I really." you know, I fear that my grandchildren are not going to get to experience some of the places and the things that I am. Right. And she's like, I just want to do something. Right. She was at your podcast workshop and I think she's now set her date to start
0: her own podcast
13: once she's settled and on the ground. So,
0: yeah. Okay. So going forward, there will be more of these conferences. I I even hear there's talk of branding, but there, there must be some blind spots. Are there certain groups that you would like more to kind of come to this? Or is there a location? So what, what would you do a little bit differently the next time?
13: Well, this is the third iteration. It definitely is a brand, thanks to the Newport Restoration Foundation, who started Keeping History of Water. It's actually been trademarked. I think we really focused, we, we listened to Newport and Annapolis, who hosted the second one. And we really focused first to get students here. And I mean, I'm with the university and, and that next generation. And I think we had a, a little better Attendance, but I would like to see more of that next generation students, recent grads participating, those future leaders. I'd like to see, we really worked hard to make sure there were like talks on kind of underrepresented heritage and some of the social justice issues, which maybe hadn't have been as, uh, hadn't been addressed in the previous conferences. We heard a lot from the tribal perspective, like in the Seminole nation, which is a big part of our heritage here in Florida. And so, I think that's critical. I think the international perspectives and what we can learn from people and other places. We had one session this time. Maybe that could be more in the future. Miami certainly seems like a, an appropriate place to do this conference. I mean, they are in many ways. We talk about them as ground zero. Jeff Goodell's famous, infamous article now, Goodbye, Miami. So there's a lot to go on. But, you know, and, and Miami is a world into itself. Again, I'm a Floridian now and I, I think it's, I can make that judgment call. It's a different place than the rest of Florida. So I think
0: it might deserve its own keeping history above water. We could go out and get some good Ropa Vieja in some of the (laughs) Cuban restaurants, and that would be wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, doctors, we are back at the conference, and I am with...
7: Melissa Wiley, the executive director for the Florida Trust of Historic Preservation.
0: So what do you guys do?
7: We are the statewide nonprofit dedicated to protecting and promoting the historic resources of Florida.
0: So how does a network work? How do you sort of provide resources? I mean, are you working with universities, private businesses? How? how what's the sort of scope of your work?
7: Our scope is sort of huge. We work with all of those people you mentioned and also with individuals and communities and local governments. We are a statewide organization, but we think that really all important preservation stuff happens locally so we try to educate and empower them at the local level
0: okay so here you are at the sea level rise it's a historic preservation conference so of course relevant but it's a sea level rise one and you're here why
7: So the Florida Trust is actually one of the sponsors of this event, and we think that that protecting Florida's historic resources is a real important part of of this work. And obviously, it's not just Florida. Places and historic resources throughout the country are going to be impacted by this. But it's time now to start thinking and planning for those impacts.
0: Okay, so any uh, speakers that have stood out for you that are really relevant or just kind of impressed you?
7: Wow, they were all very good. I think that I know probably everybody says that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I think the opening speaker who talks broadly about climate change and um, the projections for it, um, Jeff Goodell, did a great job, I think, sort of setting stage for the conference. Um, For me personally, I think that the information that shared the tribal perspective was really interesting for the people of Florida, because a lot of times that is a history and a culture that is underrepresented. I thought it was really important to have that here and to talk about that and the personal stories that were shared as part of that.
0: So I'm sure Historic preservation sites are sort of all over the state of Florida In some areas may not be as aggressive as others when thinking about sea level rise. Are you there to sort of encourage them and just make them more aware that because only so many people are at this conference, obviously, you want to go back out and say, hey look what's happening. You guys should consider this. How, how does that process work?
7: So we have learned a lot from this conference and we have board members that were speakers here and we definitely have members that were here. And we actually have our own conference coming up in a couple of weeks in Pensacola. And so we're going to continue sharing these messages. And we actually have been sharing some of this for for years. We've done workshops about sea level rise and resilience. Um, and we've done sea level rise sessions in our conferences. So it's something that we are slowly trying to build awareness of and help people starting to think about planning.
0: Are there any, I guess, political sensitivities you, that you have to have that, I mean, if you're dealing with some communities that, do you talk about climate change or do you avoid it?
7: So it's, Florida's a big state. So it's a little tricky because our local communities kind of run the gamut in terms of rural and urban and coastal and interior. And we do have to try to work with them on where they are. But regardless of the language that you use, I think that everyone in the state of Florida is seeing changes and hopefully they're willing to be open to the idea and the notion that this is something that is going to get worse and we do need to plan
0: for it. Are you ever in touch with other states? Are there other states doing really interesting work on historic preservation that you kind of look up to? Or is Florida a leader?
7: Some of Florida's communities, I think, are leaders in this. I I, I know that we've talked and heard a lot about Miami and what they've done here. We absolutely do look at other cities in the nation to see what they're doing. Annapolis is obviously a place that we look at and and try to learn from. And even just different cities in Florida, different communities, how they're responding to it, whether it's walls, which is something we've heard about here, or dams, um, even smaller dams that could be built into structure. Different solutions. Um, I think somebody mentioned here at the conference that there is no one solution, that everything is is an individual problem, and there will have to be custom solutions for all of these different areas throughout the state. Thank you so much. Thank
14: you.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are back at the conference, and I'm with...
14: Isabel Rivera Collazo. I am professor in human adaptation to climate change at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Department of Anthropology at UC San Diego.
0: What do you guys do there? So you're doing adaptation work, but what's, what's sort of some of the scope of your work?
14: I'm an environmental archaeologist. I work on understanding how people have responded to climate change in the past. So we can collect information from the past. And lessons from the past to address the problems that we're having in the present and that we might be facing in the future. In Scripps and in UC San Diego, we do many more things. So I'm part of a group of people working on issues of climate change and adaptation. But I am the archaeologists working in underwater and coastal topics. There are other, prof- other people in the university working with other topics, including food security, including from the archaeological point of view, development of agriculture, especially in, the, in China and the Mongolian Peninsula. But my work focuses on Puerto Rico specifically and adaptation to catastrophes and recovery from catastrophes.
0: Okay, so you presented yesterday. What were you talking about?
14: Yesterday, I was sharing the information of our newest project, our more rec- most recent project that we just launched in January. And I was sharing that the project is called DUNAS, it's Descendants United for Nature Adaptation and Sustainability. And in that project, we are working to restore sand dunes and using cultural heritage to communicate the impact of climate change and giving the tools back to the communities regarding their the depth of time living in the same location their cultural heritage through archaeological and hist- archeological remains and historical remains and the evidence of climate change so with all that information they can make this, their own decisions regarding adaptation mitigation strategies for their own communities and we just launched that project and I was sharing the perspective from low-income communities, displaced and marginal communities, and the the problems they are facing, facing climate change.
0: Okay, at this event, there's folks coming from academia, there's local government, there's state government, there's federal government. What's your sense about the field of historic preservation, especially adaptation? Who's missing? Are these groups pretty integrated? Uh, what's your sense?
14: I sense that m- m- many governmental offices and many of the conversations that are happening are need to integrate more local communities and non-traditional urban areas and also other aspects of heritage that is not just traditional historical buildings that are uh, traditionally accepted in the main trend discourse of heritage and identity. I have not seen much representation of other groups or ethnic groups like African American history or um, history of the indigenous tribes, but merged into the historical discourses of cities, for example. Um, and for sure, I've not seen solutions that address the real problems of people who are not wealthy. That is, I have not seen that in the discourse of climate change and many of the solutions that I've seen proposed by the speakers. Don't are not really applicable to my the communities I'm working with, so that's why I'm very happy that I could share our voice because not all not all the solutions that have been proposed actually solve the problems that low income marginal communities are facing, and they are very vulnerable to sea level rise and climate change.
0: So there's uh in the, in the U S. Sometimes local communities, just the general population doesn't necessarily appreciate historic preservation and what they have around them. I'm curious, what's the ethic like in Puerto Rico? Is your the your average citizen, do they care about historic preservation than you think more in the U.S.? I mean, I know it's part of the U.S. <laughs> We're always so guilty, but <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Just yeah, yeah. different culture in some ways, but do you sense it's different there or is it similar?
14: It's It's very different. And I had not realized how different it is. So I, I understand that we do have the same citizenship, but we are very, very, very different type of people. The attitude to to the landscape, the attitude to the connection to the land, the attitude to who are we and what is our culture and what heritage means is very different. I feel that here, yes, people do not feel attachment or it's not everyone feels attachment. Everyone feels that they come from somewhere else and they see heritage as something like tr- the traditional definition of heritage as something that you have to preserve frozen in time, while many of the, of the low income marginal communities don't see themselves in the heritage that is traditionally attempted to be preserved. You don't see the history of. Slaves in a building in Washington DC. How do, how can we transform heritage to include other voices that are representative of the social and historical processes that led to the creation of the U.S.? That's something that a conversation that needs to be more integrated and less segregated. In Puerto Rico, our history, our heritage is actually part of our identity. There is resistance in some people because they have not, they don't necessarily acknowledge the importance of cultural heritage. But in my interaction with communities where I am breaking the barrier of the the traditional voices the traditional representation of history shown as a museum piece instead of part of your own personal identity and personal background by breaking that barrier people feel very very passionate in the pro- in the protection of heritage and we are looking at heritage beyond individual buildings we are looking at archaeological sites we are looking at knowledge we are looking, looking at practices and way of stalking. that Those behaviors are encoded in the archaeology. We can return their identity to peoples, and we have been successfully doing it. So in general terms, people are in Puerto Rico, because our identity has been so challenged, uh, being a colony for 500 years and uh, under U.S. influence for over 100 years, our identity as Puerto Ricans has been very much challenged. So all the historical... Elements, Many of the historical elements that reinforce our time depth on the island are very much appreciated. And whenever we share that with people, people are very hungry for it. Um, so by empowering the communities to protect their own heritage, we have been very successful not just to protect the heritage, but also to communicate climate change and to communicate social vulnerability and to communicate... All those issues that scientists normally find challenging. By making things personal, we are able to break that barrier and, and reach people and cause change.
0: Okay, thank you so much.
14: You're welcome. Thanks a lot for the opportunity.
0: Hey, Adapters, we are here at the end of the conference, and I'm with one of the organizers, Leslie Keys, And we talked earlier, but now we're at the end of the conference, and I wanted to check back in. Hey, Leslie, how are you doing?
1: Well, I'm tired, but that's good. It's a positive tired. I think we've had an incredibly productive four days. People are seem to be very happy. They've learned a lot. They've networked incredibly. They've met all sorts of people they didn't know that were trying to accomplish some of the same things they are in different ways. So that is exactly why we did this, was to draw attention to... Our cultural resources and what we need to try to do to adapt them, and to bring some attention to St. Augustine. So I think we've accomplished both.
0: Yes, um, certainly. I appreciate it. Um, I've learned a ton about historic preservation. I did not know about. I truly, when I gave my presentation, I, I noted that I it was much more complicated and sophisticated than I gave it credit for. So that that was exciting. And so, what's kind of next? This is a brand and keeping history above water. What, what where do you see it kind of going?
1: Well, I know that other cities on the East Coast uh, are talking about trying to do this in at least a small fashion, maybe one day, if not four. Part of that, the brand is owned by Newport Restoration Foundation, so they will work on that. I think from my standpoint, I would like to see us take all this wonderful theory and cooperation, communication, and turn it into action. And that's what I would like to see happen, especially since I live in St. Augustine. So I want to see us take it to the next level and use some of what we have learned. And I would really love to see us not have any exciting disasters this year would be a really pleasant experience. again.
0: So what's next at Flagler? You've, you're going back to where you, I guess you're in the middle of being a, a professor. So what, what comes next for you regarding
1: what you do here? Well, actually, we had graduation. The day before we started the conference, which was a very intentional scheduling of the conference. So other than I have pick up and clean up and all of that, we will do an online survey actually for the program. And then I intend to stay away from here as much as possible and do a few other things and, you know, introduce myself to my family again and take a couple of vacations. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Leslie, for inviting me to be here. And this has been a real treat and I'm looking forward to sharing this with my listeners.
1: Thank you. We're so glad you were here and it was great to have you stay for the whole program.
0: Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that visit to St. Augustine and you learned how the historic preservation sector is stepping it up on climate change. As I mentioned earlier, I gave a short presentation to all the attendees where I shared my thoughts on the field of adaptation, but also what I was hearing at the conference. I was really impressed. The level of planning, the technical tools being used, and those rare examples of adaptation actually being implemented. And what I mean by that, I think in our field, we're still in this planning stage. It's a victory in some ways if a local government has developed an adaptation plan. But actual examples of on-the-ground adaptation projects aren't as common. This conference had case study after case study of this type of work happening. During my presentation to all the attendees, I told them I thought the historic preservation sector is the charismatic megafauna of the built environment. And in conservation circles, that means the pandas, the elephants of the world, things that get the most attention. That's a huge opportunity for this sector as we try to convince the broader society to take more action on sea level rise. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the city of St. Augustine. They had a huge presence at the conference. As John Regan, the city manager of St. Augustine, explained, that rarely happens at these things. It was great seeing city employees of all stripes attending. I hope to see more of this at other regional adaptation events. Kudos to organizers for making this a priority and making their work that much more relevant. Okay, I'd like to thank the sponsors again, the National Center for Preservation, Technology, and Training, Flagler College, and the University of Florida go Gators. And personally, I'd like to thank Dr. Leslie Keyes, Dr. Marty Hilton, Lisa Craig, Melissa Whistle. And Melissa, thank you for being such a great resource for the city of St. Augustine and knowing all the best places to eat. And also really would like to thank Carolyn Cox at the Florida Climate Institute for connecting me with conference organizers in the first place. Word of mouth is how these sponsored podcasts happen. Okay, a little f- housekeeping. Next up is the episode where I went to the National Adaptation Forum in Madison, Wisconsin, interviewed a bunch of folks there. I'm also headed to New York City in June to do an urban forestry episode with American Forest and the U.S. Forest Service and the Park Conservancy of New York City. We'll be highlighting the amazing adaptation work being done in the city. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also looking forward to connecting with some New York people when I'm there. America Adapts is visiting the Big Apple. Okay, Adapters, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. There is a We Did It Donate page. Consider giving a recurring donation. These are all tax deductible. This is a 501c nonprofit. And if your organization is interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell in this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. This actual episode from St. Augustine was sponsored and maybe there's an event you want to share through a podcast. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I'm doing some keynote presentations and they're a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that motivate and inspire you. You can find all this information at americadaps.org. Don't forget to join the Facebook community group and the face just Facebook page. There's some great conversations going on in that community group. And I'm on Instagram at America underscore adapts and Twitter at USA adapts. Not sure who got the America adapts at Twitter, but someone else got that. So check those out. Okay, on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. It is the highlight of my week hearing from my listeners, and it leads to cool things sometimes. I'm doing this Letters from Adapters series. On occasion, I will read a letter from an adapter on the podcast about some of the cool things that are going on out there. I'm at at gmail.com. All that stuff is on my website, americadaps.org. And don't forget to check out the extensive show notes for this episode and all the cool work being done at the Keeping History Above Water Conference. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.